I think the problem is though that if you're looking up in the air, yeah. arrows coming down on you. The other bow and arrow men could just be firing them into your midriff. Oh god! It's <laughs> the problem with history. There's a lot of murder in it. I'm not sure it's ethical to study this, does it? Hello, welcome to Meet Me at the Museum. My name is Lloyd Langford, I'm a comedian, and uh, today I've decided to bring my good friend and fellow comedian, Matt Ford, Hello. Uh, to Cardiff Castle. <laughs> Though, um, when we got here, I remembered I know nothing about Cardiff Castle. See, I presumed that you were bringing me here because you're an expert, you've been here and you knew what you're on about. I know as much of it about it as you do. You're the local boy. I uh, know, I've been here before. But you and how can you not know? Have you been here before? What did you not listen? No, I just came in to like read a book on a summer's day. It's very look at the grass over there. It's nice. I mean, if you, <laughs> I had to break this here. Wales is covered in grass. <laughs> if you're going to come to the castle, at least engage with it. Well, come to Cardiff Castle. Sit I, down and ignore the rest of it and read a book. I was hoping today we could both learn something. And the, the, the thing I've already learned is I should have invited someone else. <laughs> you're, you're telling me that the other times you came here were just some, some part of some sophisticated long game <laughs> so you could eventually get me here so that we could both experience it together. Exactly. Entrance for two to the castle, please. And uh, we've both got um, national art passes. Brilliant. That gives you a complimentary for the castle ticket, and you only got to upgrade 335 for the tour. This is Meet Me at the Museum. The fact that in a modern city centre like Cardiff, when you think of the city centre, particularly now with, with the huge stadium that's there, you've got this, in quite a compact city centre, this huge stadium that hosts massive boxing and rugby and football events, and then you, you, visible from there is, is a completely different history but just as significant and big. And it's cool that the two things exist near each other. So, Matt, I'm just wondering, like, before we have, like, a proper look around the castle, what are your expectations? Like, what are you expecting to find? I have no idea what to expect. I mean, what is going to be beyond those walls? I don't know how big stuff's going to be or how small or... Because of the exterior walls, I imagine it to be quite grand. It's very, it's very, it's like located like slap bang, like right at the heart of the place. Because like strategically, I mean, it's like, like it's next to the Pizza Express, but like there's no like high ground here, right? Yeah, I don't know the logic of having a castle right in the city centre, <laughs> but it's cool that it is that that you can walk side by side. You know, you know that so many other generations will have lived here, and, and the evidence is 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 visible. Well, I've got I've got some things lined up. Oh, um, yeah. You'll be excited to know. Yeah, like what? Well, we're gonna have um, some uh, weapon demonstrations. Brilliant! Yeah, some. I didn't expect that. Medieval um, weaponry. Wow! And um, I'm gonna take you up the clock tower. I beg your pardon. <laughs> there's there's a clock tower yeah. uh, in the corner. How uh, far? What, 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 it's, a fair, it? it's a fair old height. It was at one point. It was the the tallest um, building in Cardiff. It's a hundred and one steps, I think. Oh. But something I'm also we're also going to do, which I think you'll be really excited about. Um, and I wasn't even aware of this before um, I arranged this tour. Is um, there are tunnels uh, in in the grounds of the castle? And they were used um, during the Second World War 
um, as uh, temporary bomb shelters. Oh, that is very cool. It'd be quite eerie, I imagine. You can hold my hand. <laughs> my hand, you brute. <laughs> so, uh, me and Matt now are inside the castle grounds, and we've just bumped into uh, Kevin Bird, who is the castle manager. And uh, if you'd be so kind, Kevin, could you give us, like, a potted history of the castle? OK, so, very crudely, the castle is essentially what you're looking at today, a Roman fort uh, with a Norman keep built on the top of it and a, a manor house that has been built on pretty much every century since. Most of what you're looking at is a Victorian fantasy, but it's been built on a medieval manor house. And then, because he liked his clock tower so much in the 19th century, Third Marcus Boot decided to build another one just over to the east, pretty much where the Greyfriars Tower is now. They started excavating to build him his archway and another clock tower, and they discovered Roman remains. Wow. And about, we're talking 1880 now, they think, oh, wow, it's Roman. So what they did was built up the walls as faux Roman walls, ah, which yeah. is why most people say it's fake, because the, the exterior of it is basically late 19th century, early 20th century. The tunnels were built on the idea of Roman tunnels in Fort, which they never had. Right. The only place there's anything like that is in Rome itself. But it was really just an indulgence for him to wander down. I mean, he sounds like an indulgent guy. Like, why would you want two clock towers? He was the richest man in the world. He was the richest <laughs> man in the world. <laughs> Effectively, the, the, the guide here will tell you on tour, he was earning in 1850 at £300,000 a year. The Welsh historian John Davis said that, effectively, he had more wealth than all the Arab, you know, United Arab Emirates put together. Wow. And he was controlling something like 40% of the world's fuel at that time, which was coal, obviously, as opposed to oil nowadays, yeah. from this port. Nice. So, you know, the wealth was enormous. So, therefore, when he starts messing up, this was a holiday home. That's all this was. Six weeks a year they used to stay here. Um, and when you go inside and see it all, you know, you get the Arab room, it's like a 24-carat gold ceiling, because your architect, who nobody else in the world can afford, says, I want to build a gold ceiling. He goes, yeah, go for it. He also did a lot of other stuff. He's a big philanthropist, um, extremely radical for a you know, Victorian aristocracy. He didn't much like the royals, he didn't like hunting, he, didn't, he, he, he was a massive campaigner for women's rights, those kind of things. Yeah. Um, big on indigenous languages, so his kids were taught to speak Welsh when they were here, French when they were in France. Um, so they were quite radical in that sense, but there was still this kind of opulence about the way they lived. Oh, Jesus. The speed it comes out! Uh, we're uh, we're in the grounds of the castle, and there's a archery demonstration um, by a man in uh, medieval clothing. Yeah, and he's got a crossbow, and he means business. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's just unleashed an arrow there at that target. The ferocity with which it's released. I mean, he must have a license for that, surely. He's got the face of a baby. But the aim of a trained killer. Yes, he was the original baby-faced assassin, <laughs> so they got the nickname from. Here he goes. Here he goes. Here's another one. So it is satisfying sound as well, yeah. isn't it? Funk. If you think about what we're seeing here, this is the equivalent of in a hundred years' time, someone demonstrating a gun. <laughs> so now this is a semi-automatic rifle. We're just going to show the kids how to use it. Uh, these sort of things could probably execute three or four people <laughs> within a couple of seconds. Just oh fired it word. up into the air and very narrowly missed a pigeon. <laughs> That's why Englishmen and Welshmen were told from an early age they have to practice with it. Every boy and every man over the age of eight or nine 
Hello, my name's Master Vance and I am a sergeant at arms at this beautiful castle of Cardiff. This is the gentle one that me and Mark were just watching uh, absolutely nail the archery target. And so we've now he's put his bow down, we felt <laughs> safe to approach him. Would these things be dangerous, these ones? The arrows you point out, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a cloth yard arrow out of a longbow is going to be travelling at 80 odd miles an hour. It can literally drive straight through armour, straight through you and out the other side. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, it's, I was saying to Lloyd, when you, you're demonstrating something to children that was designed to execute people, yeah. really, designed to kill, it would be like in 500 years' time doing a sort of gun demonstration. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> Weapons like this in force, so you've got the famous battles, Agincourt, Cressy, stuff yeah. like that, where you've got basically a bunch of smelly peasants from England and Wales <laughs> going over to France on a jolly. Yeah, right? just like they do today. Yeah, just like you do today. <laughs> lads on and tour. Lads on, these are lads on tour, it's like a rugby tour. Right? And basically, every archer should be able to shoot round about 12 arrows a minute, that's one every five seconds. So that's you, fast though, that's, isn't it? That's fast. And... It hits them like a wall. So you've got all these knights galloping towards you, flower of French chivalry, and then suddenly this cuts through the air. And it's the disorder that it causes. It's not just the casualties. It's the fact you're creating an atmosphere of total chaos. So you've got wounded horses flying off one way. You've got muddy fields. You've got blood and guts. Even if you're not, like, fatally hit, like, it's it's really going to take your enthusiasm. If you take the front rank of horses down, the second rank then hits them and crashes into them. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. And is it true that the V sign comes from the the French would cut off the archer's fingers? It was certainly said by the French during the Hundred Years' War that if you caught an English archer or a Welsh artist, you take his fingers off and usually his thumb as well so it's, it's thumb and first two fingers because yeah. then you can't draw a bow if you kill him then he, his friends will say a quick prayer and carry on marching won't they but if you disable him and he's your mate you've got to feed him you've got to give him medical care you've got to somehow uh, yeah. ship him so, back so it occupies more logistics yeah it's really going to like dampen morale as well isn't it yeah, I'm going to look yeah, after yeah. like Johnny Seven Fingers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's your livelihood so if we ever became reenactors you'd want to do the violent stuff right yeah you know I don't want to be like um, someone doing the tapestry in the back room exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, historical reenactor the, uh, the guy did the pot washing <laughs> Yeah, she used to wash pots like this, really. Use hot, wa- hot water's better for it. Very much like now, hot water's better. And if you've got any sort of cleaning agent, just scrub it really hard. I mean, there's very little has changed in the pot washing industry. You want to be like... You want to be getting your hands dirty, I think. Be in the turret, and you want to be the best, don't you? You also don't want to be the person who gets hit with, a, with an arrow. No. So, um, after our fun uh, with the archery, we've just bumped into Jay, who's uh, dressed as a knight, and I think he's going to show me and Matt some uh, medieval weaponry. Yeah, we've we've got varying swords there, so you've got a single-handed sword at the moment, so it's a sword that you'd only hold with one hand. Um, and you go, and it's, there's different periods. I mean, this is an early type of sword. And if you change the hilt and the structure of the blade, this has been used right the way through. Vikings use these swords, and you know, Saxons use these swords. And it's kind of it's evolved slowly over yeah. this point here. So by the time that the armor transitioned into to what I'm wearing now, you can afford to drop the shield and get on with something a bit bigger. Oh, lovely. 
So this is a hand and a half sword. So single hand sword, you hold with one hand. Yep. Hand and a half sword, you can hold with one hand or with two hands. So if you think about it, if you take a few steps back, point the sword out towards me. Okay. So now with two hands on it, you wouldn't be able to get me properly from there. But if you just take one hand off, you can extend your range and get people a lot further out. Oh, yeah. Really simple. But you're not going to hit me as hard. You realise not only people hard, there's a great deal of talent to right. use this properly. And there's real skill. An unbelievable amount that goes into any of this. I mean, these guys were training to do this from a really young age. You know, you start you start your training to becoming a knight at, at you know What's around it? six, seven years old. They say of going six through six years old. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. There's no Xbox and PlayStation back then. You had to you had to do it's something. Sort of <laughs> That's it. But you, you know, you were you were pretty much born into it by this point. You know, you were going you were born into a family, and that's that was going to be your your route. So I've got another sword for you, actually. If you yes, want to please. try something a little bit bigger, yeah, please, yeah. So I've um, got a great sword with me. Great sword's a lot bigger, obviously, as, as you can imagine. Um, I'll get this one here. Wow! Oh my God! Look at the hilt on it. Okay, so this one. It's five foot nine. That lino sword. Okay. Yeah. That's like taller than Tom Cruise. Just put one hand at the top of the grip there, one hand at the bottom. You use the leverage to be able to do it. Gosh. They say that sword fighting, sword versus sword wasn't particularly a thing too much you know yeah. kind of by the time especially by the time it come to us you'd do it and they'd, they would compete and fight with it like that but on the battlefield it was rare by the by the time you got to the to the 15th century it was it was all about showing off really okay now this, this is a type of mace um yeah. that's called a nobbler okay so um you say um you get nobbled on the football pitch yes oh, something yeah, yeah. yeah it comes from being smacked with one of these things it's something heavy on the end of a stick really um and you smack people with a heavy bit a, a simple mace. I mean, these are uh, apparently with a the, you know a favoured weapon in the fighting clergy. So you know, so priests will go onto the battlefield and fight with stuff. Like wow! This, so, you know, and war priests that, they get getting get involved over there. But there was a there was a law that they they said you know within the Christian belief that they weren't able to harm another Christian with an edged weapon. You know, but you can smack them on the head with something. Heck of like a loophole that. Loop that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Just so yeah, happens, these are far yeah. more effective at hurting people than than that. Ever yeah, was. That, that, that would that would like knock a hole Wait. in your skull. So when you've got like the state opening a parliament and they have a mace, yep. is that like derived so. from this? Yeah, and lots of them. You um, have to go from scepters and, and things like that. A lot of these ceremonial things do come from, from the weapons that people would have had and held at the same time. I really envy Wales, its history. Not only because you've got castles everywhere, but because it is, it's, a, it's the story of rebellion against you know, malign authority. And you, are you th- you're still like anti-monarchy now as well? Oh yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's not for me. So I just think, why? I really struggle with with English and British history sometimes, and not just the empire and things, but because you're so often the oppressors. Yeah, and we're told, oh, there's this great, wonderful king, and you're like, he was ki- my ancestors <laughs> were punished by these people, and I'm being forced to trot through their property and be grateful. I have an interest in the monarchy historically. I think the history of it and the obviously the wealth of it and the creation of it, yeah. like the fact that you forget, because we live here, how old Britain is as a country. Like if you go somewhere yes. like America, they don't have the same kind of history. Yeah. And I guess things like castles and stuff persevere because of the wealth we had. Yeah, that's a good point, because when I go abroad and you learn about other monarchies or whatever, you go, oh, it's really cool, it's really <laughs> cool. And then with ours, I'm like, what a load of rubbish, <laughs> these inbred aristocrats, you know, they're thick, 
<laughs> Whereas abroad, you go, well, their pageantry is great. You, know, you go to the Vatican and they're all dressed up like idiots. You go, oh, it's brilliant that they've got these. And when you say how lot do it, you go, oh, a couple of men are wearing tights. And it's just, it makes you realise, appreciate actually that the history, the pageantry in that, I, I like. And I would never want to be a barbarian about it. No. And remove that history, regardless of what it means. Because yeah. it, is, it tells you something even if you disagree with it. And it's important to keep a link to the past. So maybe I am a bit harsh. Okay. What we you don't slip. The, we need to shut the door there. No, no, that's no, fine. That's yeah. Right. Doors open, that's fine. That's it, straight to there. Go on, God, just stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Good fun, eh? Oh, man. I do this ten times a day. It's <laughs> so fit. <laughs> Keep you fit. But yes, this is uh, called the wow. sleeping room. This is the most haunted part of the castle. There used to be a cleaner. She claims that uh, she was cleaning the grate and all of a sudden, chilly fingers went down her spine. She never came up here to get in her room. I had to come with her every time. Right, my name's Dean Adams. I've been a guide here for 15 years. I'm a professional archaeologist and a tour guide taking people on tours. So we've just walked up the 101 steps and we're at the very top of the clock tower now in the uh, summer smoking room. And uh, the design of the room is incredible. There's um, gold leaf and um, painted uh, tiles all over. We've got um, four columns in each uh, corner of the room with, um, I think, wooden sculptures on top of them. And we've got, uh, also got like a, a pretty much 360-degree uh, view of Cardiff. It, it, it's incredible. It's like a mixture between um, a kind of old pub in the House of Lords. Yeah. It's got that proper regal, and particularly in the scene yeah. in the gold um, yeah. balcony. So what yeah. would have happened, what was the balcony for? Well, the balcony was a viewing area so we could have surveyors' estates. As far as the eye can see, this man owned. And we have to remember, this decoration is very much about the man himself. Okay. It's his autobiography on the wall. He's talking about he's very wealthy, he's well-travelled, he's educated, he's religious, and he's also very observant of the world around him. He wants to explain to people he's been to other countries and he thinks he's understood the way they think. This is why he's brought a great deal of influence from other countries, from the empire. He's also explained that the empire stretched all over the world. This is why visitors are fascinated to see architecture and decoration from their country in a Welsh castle. This was a talking point for him and his friends. Remember, he'd bring his closest friends up here and they would discuss the decoration in depth. They could all read ancient Greek, Latin, hieroglyphics. So they were constantly conversing in these languages together, talking about uh, uh, their love of history. I get the, um, the, the, the point of having a, view, a spectacular view and wanting oh, yeah. to show yeah. to your guests all the rest of it. Yeah. But coming up 101 steps for a party, <laughs> well, it's exhausting. If, uh, what you have to remember, the summer smoking room is closer to God in his eyes. He's reaching uh, up to God. This is why a lot of the decoration reaches up. Yes. Also, this is a private area for your seances. You don't want to be interrupted. And this is well, where you do they... want to be interrupted. Indeed. <laughs> not, or... by, not by people. Absolutely. <laughs> Perhaps by the paranormal, but not by other people. <laughs> Uh, so we're, uh, we've just arrived at the part of the castle um, that I had absolutely no idea about and I think that we're both the most <laughs> excited by uh, and that is the um, subterranean tunnels uh, that during uh, the Second World War uh, were used as air raid shelters. Um, so this is just like 
however many times I've been to Cardiff, like, I have absolutely no idea <laughs> that this was here. Um, we're also joined uh, again by uh, Kevin, the castle manager, um, and he, he can explain to us a little bit, I think, about the um, air raid tunnels. Okay, so basically we're in the walls of the castle, which were built as sort of faux Roman walls but when they discovered the, the castle was Roman. But during the Second World War, they were actually sort of commandeered by the city council to become air raid shelters for the, for the people living in the city and working in the city centre. And we're just about to head through the blast walls now into the tunnels proper. And as we walk past that... When the air raid siren sounded in the centre of Cardiff, this was where people took shelter, and up to about, I believe, 1,800 people at any one time would be crowded into these pretty claustrophobic spaces. And it's incredibly invo- evocative, you know, like the, they've, they've got the old um, types of uh, bunk beds, because um, you were saying that people uh, would have to spend the night here often. Oh, yeah, I mean, they were dormitory shelters, so there's lots of, um, we've got lots of beds in there now showing how they were divided up and people would have to stay and crowd in. In terms of trying to imagine the atmosphere in here when people were crammed in, were people cowering in fear? Were people singing? Like, what, what were people up to? Well, we, we, a bit mix of all those things, I think, because we've had um, a few people, you know, who said they, they were quite scared during those periods. We've only had a few real genuine episodes of oral history you can actually remember being in these tunnels. We've also got loads of um, records of letters and stuff from, uh, you know, the time, and there were people who were behaving badly, shall we say. I think um, <laughs> young couples whose inappropriate behaviour meant that they got sent back out into the night to, uh, you know, and, and I think drunken behaviour as well was pretty frowned on, but obviously went on because people were, um, Well, I guess know, if there's a... If there's a, a way to get by. If there's an air raid warning and you're already drunk in the pub... <laughs> then you're just going to come in the castle, right? Like you, like you just have to basically like drop everything. So if you were already, if you'd already had six or seven pints, I mean, I hope there were toilets. <laughs> I was just about to ask for the toilets. I don't know that. That's a really good question. And not there's not there's not much in evidence that I can see no. down there. So I imagine it was probably some sort of chemical toilets or something. But that's a really good question. I've never thought about that. So how how long would people be in there for? We know that during the Second World War there was a good. 15 or 16 nights, I believe, that Cardiff actually took quite heavy bombing. Obviously aimed at the docks, but the city centre did suffer quite a bit. And we know the castle itself took one or two direct hits on a couple of those nights. So, um, you know, you'd want to make sure you're waiting till it was light again, I think, before you you ventured out. But we've had people of that generation, particularly, who remember, you know, the events of the war and remember bombings maybe in other parts of Britain or maybe even in Cardiff itself, who get really quite emotional and evocative when they hear the soundtrack and they hear the sounds of the bombs and re- recall what it was like. It was, um, it's quite a sort of um, poignant experience. I don't know about you, but I think that was maybe the highlight of the visit for me. It was just a combination of of two disparate periods of history, you know, yeah. like the Roman folly of the tunnels within the wall of the castle, and then that like smashing up against the Second World War. 
it, that was more, far more immersive than anything else here. And maybe it's because the history is still within, you know, there are people alive that still lived that. Yeah. It's, it's closer to home for us, I suppose. But that was far more moving, really, and scary. Yeah. Really scary, the thought of being in there, wondering whether a bomb's going to hit. How, how have you found your day at the castle in general? I've loved it, and I just thought that was such a cool way to end it because it was all the medieval stuff earlier, in like swords and chain mail. Then it was all the eccentric <laughs> clock tower dude, and then this incredible, r- relatively modern part of the the history—not just of the castle, but of the city. But I mean, anyway, going down a long, dark, badly lit corridor is spooky. Yeah, knowing that what it was used for, and, and the you know. Not that long ago, full of people hoping they don't die. And also the fact that he said the castle took, like, a couple of direct hits. I think he said that it was one bomb landed in the middle in the courtyard area. Yeah. There, there would have been, on that night, 2,000 people that, that owed their lives to, to the, the structure and the security of the castle walls. Imagine, the, imagine feeling that hit, wondering whether another one's coming. Just, the whole place was shook. Yeah. Just so... Visceral yeah. fear. I think the thing that, that really kind of took it to the next level was the knowledge of like the experts that we met, because they were really up for demonstrating and sharing their skills with us. That's so true. I think whenever you, I've been to museums or visitor attractions, you sometimes just think, "Well, I'll just wander around on my own." Yeah. And actually, you don't really get the benefit. You're looking at stuff. You can't put it into context. You don't want to know what it means when you've got the expertise there. It brings the whole thing to life. Otherwise, you know, you could just have a perfectly nice day just gawping around. Yeah. But it wouldn't trigger in you and it wouldn't ignite the ideas and the, and, the, and the passion that this has done today. So do you think we should maybe try and see if we can pinch a couple of swords? Thank you for listening to Meet Me at the Museum at Cardiff Castle. And if you get yourself an art pass, you can get free entry or discounts on museums all around the country. I think that's where they keep the swords. All right, well, let's, do you want one? Yeah, yeah, go Let's on. get one. Come on, come on. Boy, someone's coming. Boy, <laughs> boy. <laughs> oh, you softy. <laughs>